Let's do it. And welcome to Oscar Podcast episode 31. This is we're skipping our Oscar years today to 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 bring you a special edition that we wanted to do while we were in Cannes, but we could just never get it together partly because the Wi-Fi is just kind of bad everywhere. Um, but also we just didn't really have time to sit anywhere and do it. I couldn't have done it at my place because of the Wi-Fi, and, and um, Craig kind of has a, had a roommate situation, and that would have been awkward. So we never really had the time to do it, but now we're here, and we'd like to talk um, a little bit about Cannes, and we've all three seen Behind the Candelabra, which played at Cannes um, in main competition. Um, Unfortunately, didn't win any awards, but uh, at the end. But who cares, right? We're we're, we're yeah. an awards podcast that doesn't care about awards. <laughs> so. <laughs> and besides, it's like Can has like five awards that it hands out for for fifty fantastic movies. So it's like there are going to be a lot of people that go away empty-handed. Sure, right. Yeah. And it's a, it's a small jury that changes every year, so it's not like a, a big predictable. Oscar group of people. Right. It's it's, uh, it's random based on the personalities of that that given year. Absolutely. Who's mm-hmm. the most influential? Who has the strongest opinion? You know, that kind of thing. And it does change. The year that Tim Burton was jury, I think they picked, that was the year they picked Uncle Boone Me for the, <laughs> the Palm Door. Um, which I've never I've never seen that movie. Have I, no, I never, which is awesome. Yeah. I know. Yeah. I never saw it either. I knew that. I probably I knew for sure that you'd seen it, Craig. I, I need to see it. I'm ashamed that I haven't. But so probably aside from behind the candelabra, that's probably the only movie that I'll be able to talk about. The rest of the 90 minutes, I'll just sit back and and just say like wow and whoa for all listening to the stories. <laughs> well. Um, we can start out with, um, you know, just sort of, Craig, why don't you just sort of give your impressions of what your trip was like and stuff. And, and Craig saw the big movie um, that, that played there that is all the talk and won the Palme d'Or, the grand prize, which I did not um, see. So my discussion on blues, the warmest color, will, will be limited. Um, but nonetheless, we can still go through it. Since I've already been four times, Craig, what was your experience like in Cannes? It was the best thing ever, and I'm so depressed to be back right now. <laughs> the first thing I did was start looking at the film festival schedule and try and figure out a way that I could spend a whole year in Europe just going from one film festival to another. You could probably almost do that, right? Totally could do that, at least one a month. And it was just, uh, you know, I, I, I was when we went to a um, we went to a, a roundtable lunch thing with the Coen brothers for Inside Lewin Davis, and we were at a table, uh, me and Sasha were sitting at a table with David Poland and Chaz Ebert. And Poland Which is a thrill. This, what's that? I was going to say that that's a thrill already. Yeah, it was totally yeah. awesome meeting Chaz. Mm-hmm. Um, but Poland always has this kind of attitude, like, why can? You know, he, he gets frustrated that people make such a big deal out of can because, I guess, I don't know. I, I, I didn't really understand what his point was, and I, I was just kind of trying to think about it. And it is a long way to go to see some movies, but I kind of interjected myself into the conversation, and there's just, there's there's a, a respect for cinema there in France, especially, and the same way that they have a respect for food and certain aspects of culture, and it's just a totally different experience than something similar here it just 
it's it's hard to explain until you actually experience it. And I was sort of expecting it, but it actually took me by surprise at how wonderful the whole thing was. Mm. Yeah, you really took to it, I have to say, like a duck to water. He never had any of those sweaty, humiliating, awful moments that I've gone through there. I had plenty of moments of panic because this was the f- this was the first time I'd actually been out of the country in about 30 years. I haven't been wow. in a place where English is not the first language, not counting the San Fernando Valley, for a really really long time. And it's 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 weird to have everything that you sort of take for granted be just a little bit different. You know, it's mm. like being able to go somewhere and have somebody completely understand what you're saying is not something you ever have to think about. But then suddenly, and I regret that my my French language skills sucked so bad. I wish that I had had more time to prepare to to brush up on that a little bit. But um, so it was disorienting and often frustrating. But at the same time, it was exhilarating. Is and there I, usually someone uh, um, easily, I mean, close by who you can can ask for assistance uh, with translation? Everybody spoke English a little bit, a certainly little all bit. much 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 better than what I speak French, but um you know you have to be you have to talk slowly and and you can't just prattle on like I tend to do in in my in my own comfort with my own language but um it uh it was good. Yeah, it's the thing that struck me about it the first time I went and now I'm kind of jaded to it because I've been a few times but the first thing that really really was overwhelming to me um, was how little they talk about things like box office and, um, you know, res- you know, Twitter reception and stuff like that. I mean, what you're talking about in Cannes usually is about the movies. Are they good? You know, it's just it's a whole different mindset than here in any film festival you see here. Here it's all about how will the movie be received? You know, what do these dumb Twitter people think about it? Um, and is and that- festivals... I'm sorry, but festivals are really a lot of uh, the purpose of them is is a marketplace, right? Is to find distributors. Every festival, the films that are there, a lot of them are looking for distributors. But uh, I get a sense that there's more of that happening in Toronto in Telluride than that. It's not so overwhelming at Cannes that all that stuff stuff happens in hotel suites, and it's not the main topic of conversation. Exactly, that's the thing. That's the weird thing about it is that it really does go on. Like my ex-boyfriend, who is French, um, is a film producer, and he goes to Cannes every year, and they just he has no. They have no involvement in, like, the main competition films and the kind of stuff we're doing. But there's a huge, you know, full layer of wheeling and dealing, um, all kinds of parties and selling to this person, that person. That happens that, you know, we would never see any of that. You know, it's all in a totally different layer. Um, And they do have the... um, we're the press, so we get the press badges. And then they have the market screenings, and those are really for the buyers. Um, But... Somehow they managed to separate, I think, the this idea of um, representing astonishing international cinema as they try to do. For instance, they didn't accept um, the Robert Redford movie All is Lost into the main competition because they said it was too mainstream. <clears throat> First of all, they were wrong. It's not too mainstream. But it, it, it was interesting to hear that that was their mindset, that they were thinking in terms of um, I don't, we don't want something that's mainstream. We want something that's daring and outside the box. I mean, this is a this is a group that picked um, Tree of Life and and it, it picked you know blue blue is the warmest color this this past year and and you know and every year the, you know Lars von Trier or whatever in the past. I mean, they pick really edgy, really daring, um, envelope pushing, groundbreaking cinema. 
you know, and, and no, Poland's right. Those, those don't have a chance in an Oscar race. But so what, you know? Right. That, that, that's not, that's the furthest thing from their mind when they're, when they're, when they're picking them. It's like going into, it's like going into a really nice restaurant and you don't even get a menu and you, you just have to trust the chef to give you whatever he's going to give you that day. And you know that it's going to be awesome because he's got this incredible talent. And that's kind of the way it is. You, you, you I mean, I guess you can read about the, there's, each movie has buzz going in advance, but I didn't even read the catalog. I didn't even want to know what the movies were about. I went based on, purely based on who made it, based on, you know, what, what I knew about the, the directors previously. So, you know, I would go into a movie not knowing at all what to expect, but trusting that whoever had chosen it had chosen it for a reason. And there was only a couple of cases where I felt like I had been burned. And obviously, even in those cases, there there were people who disagreed with me and thought that the, those particular movies that I didn't like were the greatest thing. So it's 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 hard to even say that there were dogs, even though there were ones that I didn't particularly care for. But it was just so such a wonderful, amazing experience to kind of just put yourself in somebody else's hands like that and know that it was going to turn out okay for the most part. Because yeah. I imagine that the buzz that you do here probably is not really all that reliable. Any. Anyway, because the buzz, what is it based on? It's really the movies are a lot of things that are that are relatively unknown. Very few people have seen them at all, and it's not like uh, they've been hashed out on on Twitter and people have seen have been seeing clips and 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 stills and everything for the past month for these movies. Some of them are really obscure things, right? I'd say that, that yeah, yeah, it's true. But but what happens is that it screens once. Um, and if you're lucky enough to get into that early screening, then you're part of the buzz. And if you're not, then all of a sudden, like what happened with me was that first screening of Blue is the Warmest Color. Um, <clears throat> for some reason, I thought it was a different movie that night. I thought it was um, Michael Cole House. I got my schedule mixed up. So I skipped it and went home. And then after everybody saw it, they were calling it a masterpiece, and it just exploded. And then there were two, you know, a couple more screenings of it the next day. Um, and you try to scramble to get into those. And I could have gotten into one. It's just that I would have missed my, my deadline um, to write this review, which I now regret doing. But nonetheless, um, you, you know, you just have to just try to deal with it. You have to eat shit if you miss a great movie. You just have to eat shit and wait till see it again. But you're not going to be part of that experience of um, of those people kind of, you know, when you're at ground zero, it's something really, really that takes hold like that movie did. And um, the other movie I think I would say that came out that had the really major buzz was um, The Coen Brothers. It seemed to be almost universally beloved by people. And yeah. you were absolutely so determined to see that that you stood in line um, in the rain, right? I mean, that's one thing this 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 trip that you both had to experience is, is you have to expect that you're going to stand in line outside theaters, but you don't usually have to stand in the rain, <laughs> right? So that's a drag. I didn't mind, you know. I um, I wound up waiting an hour and a half in the rain with no umbrella and with no coat for the blue is the warmest color, and um, that's not what I'd planned to do. But because it, it, it started out the day was really nice, and we I thought the rain was kind of already behind us, and so I didn't feel like carrying around the umbrella or carrying around my jacket. So I was just walking around doing my thing, and then after one of my screenings, I was going to go get some food and bring it back and, and sit in line and type some stuff on my laptop while I was waiting for the for the screening. Because with the blue badge, with the really hot films, even if you show up pretty early, you might still get screwed, mm. which we found with the Coen brothers. If we'd been a little less early than what we were, we probably wouldn't have gotten in. Even yeah. we, were, we were at the front of the line, so we were able to get in. But anyway... 
um, then it started raining, and um, I just got drenched and and. And listen to your voice. Listen, you got a cold, right? And you have consumption. Yeah. So it's like yeah, a really exactly. tragic story. So when you die of consumption, this is going to be really part <laughs> no, of your legend. It did. Yes, exactly. it, it beat me up. Beat me up pretty bad. That that sit. I was pretty much wiped out the next day. You know, I couldn't really. And it, it definitely takes a toll. It's a young person's festival. I mean, it's like some of these kids. Like we met this guy named Jordan Cronk, who was like, what was he like, five or six or seven movies in a day? I mean, he just. You know, did not get tired, just one after the other. Yeah, he was seeing stuff at the market. He was seeing Director's Week stuff. He was seeing Critics Fortnite stuff. He was he was doing everything. Yeah, those young ones, they can they can make it all happen like that. It's a young person's world, Sasha. (laughs) Well, certainly can is that's for sure. I learned that this time. If you're old, you have to sort of pick and choose just just from regular old fatigue. Because what good is it if you fall asleep? And you don't even see the movie anyway, you know? Yeah, And, and exactly. if you're too tired to consider what you've seen, if you don't have time to, to, to think of a little bit, to ponder about what you've seen before you write a review, I think that would, that, would, that would enter into it as well. And it would be grueling to see five movies a day under any circumstances, but it had the added physical stress of, of the uh, weather being inclement and stuff like that is, is uh, more even more stress. Yeah. And then having to write about them on top of that, and then also the movies themselves tend to be a more intense, intellectual experience than, you know, going to the multiplex and seeing Iron Man 3 and everything else. So it, right. it, it definitely wears you down. And I've, I've the only festivals that I'd been to before have been relatively small local festivals. And I knew from my own experience that I tend to burn myself out. I'll go and see too many movies too early. I'll spend too much time drinking too much when I'm not seeing movies. And I burn out halfway through. So this time... I steered as clear as I could from the drinking until later in the festival, and I tried not to kill myself. I tried to moderate how much I actually saw, and as a result, I probably didn't see as much as I should or could have, and I didn't write as about as much as I should have, but I think I enjoyed myself more overall, and for my first time, that was probably more important. I know there's probably an assistance and a probably a pressure to want to write about what you've seen the same day because every, so many other people are posting their reviews the same day. But it's not as if you can't write about some of the things that you didn't cover now, right? Now that you're back, you, you've had time to consider them, and you can write about some of the things that you didn't have time to, to do a, a full review on while you were there. Yeah, if That's, you, if that's you been my intention, to. but I've just pretty much been sitting on the couch for the last three days in a depressed, cold fog. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, um, the funny thing about seeing movies like that, like five or six or seven in a row, it's like what it becomes almost like is is doing drugs or drinking, you know, where where you need more intensity to kind of stand out, you know what I mean, or to, mm-hmm. to up the experience. And I think that in that case, a subtle movie like Nebraska, for instance, is going to get swallowed up. You know, and 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 pushed aside for movies like um, Blue's Orms Color or any of these other more intense. Um, they they pull you out of your seat kind of movies. You know, right? That's the damage I think of seeing too many movies is that the subtle ones don't hit you as hard. Because you, I think, have a tendency not only to judge the movie on, on its own merit, but we would be judging it against the movie. All the other movies that you yeah, saw that day, exactly. you'd be. What was the best movie I saw today? Instead of like, what's the best movie overall for its own, on its own merit? It would be how is it compared to what I saw two hours ago? And you think about a critic's job as to when 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 they're writing about the film, the person who's going to go see this movie isn't going to have seen five movies in one day. They're going to go see maybe one movie a week. You know, maybe if your review is good enough, they'll go out and see this movie that you're recommending. You know, 
So it's hard. I think it's hard if you smash them all together like that to really get a good read on on an imp- the impact of a movie, the the eventual impact it can have. Yeah, and you're seeing you're seeing in a short span of time a selection of what will turn out to be some of the greatest movies that come out this year, and it's all at once, and it's all under extremely high pressure circumstances. And I I tend to be mistrustful of of snapshot reviews like that, and I, I tried to write as many of them as I could myself, but I don't even trust what I wrote because you know these movies deserve more attention than that, you know. And I think um, even a movie that I think most people agreed was great, like Inside Lewin Davis, I think there were some people who a little disappointed in it because it seems like a smaller movie compared to some of the others in its own way. It's it's mm-hmm. one that requires you to sit and reflect about it a little bit more. I think it's not an instant. It's not going to be an instant punch in the gut for everybody. Right. No, that's true. <coughs> I felt that about Nebraska and All Is Lost and Inside Lewin Davis. But I have to say that that once again that um, I think this is maybe the first time in four years that. I felt that the American filmmakers were as good, you know, were holding their own against the international filmmakers, whereas usually that's not the case. It started out, um, the whole festival started on a down note with Gatsby. It was terrible. And so it's kind of seemed like, okay. But, you know, I have to say, I will say, I have to interrupt it. I will say that you had, when you just get off the plane, you've just arrived, and you have all of these fantastic films ahead of you. A film like Gatsby is not really a Cannes film anyway, no. and it's, it's bound. I don't. I think it probably suffered um, to be the to, to be the opening night film at Cannes. I think that yeah. it, it, it can't have been. People are just not in the mood for it. People have traveled from all around the world and they're exhausted. Then right? they're not in the mood. The year before it was Wall Street too. It was kind of this in the same mm. position. It's sort of like they want a big splashy movie with with stars, but. Um, uh, but it's too commercial for Cannes, you know. Like right. the, it's just not a place for like a big splashy commercial. First of all, the people covering it, the critics covering it, aren't looking for that. Don't want to see that, and are going. They have their knives out, mm-hmm. and they will take it down. And they especially like to take down American films. But um, because I hate to see that happen, and because I know that the, it's fine that you, that neither of you, really care for Gatsby as much as I do. That's fine. I don't mind that at all. But I will. I, I, I do want to defend it whenever I can to, to to remind people that some people did like it. I liked it. And, some, and it's not a disaster. It wasn't a terrible... I don't think it's a terrible movie. I think it's a it's a really interesting movie. And I will, I'd be happy to... I'd be glad that... I'm looking forward to seeing it again. And I'm glad that it's making a lot of money because I think that, that we don't want to... I think that what Baz Luhrmann is trying to do, we don't want to discourage that, what he's doing. I will freely admit that I probably would have liked it better under different circumstances. This was the worst possible way for me to see the movie because it was the first night, because I was still adjusting to this whole new experience, and because it just doesn't stack up in the same way to the other movies that that mm-hmm. played, that it, it just was the wrong environment. And actually, I, I sort of knew that beforehand, and I would have skipped it. If there was anything else at all happening, I wouldn't have gone. I would have done whatever else was happening, but that was the only movie playing that at that time because it was the opening film. Mm-hmm. So I went, and I figured it would be a good way to sort of get my feet wet with the whole screening thing. There were things I really liked about it. I thought Leo um, was a better Gatsby than Robert Redford. I think that he really captured the desperation um, of that character. I think that Daisy was my biggest problem. I thought she was really miscast as Daisy, as beautiful as she is and as alluring and charismatic. I just don't. I think she's too com- emotionally complex, 
and compassionate and, you know, you like her too much to, to be a, a good Daisy who has to kind of just sort of be, um, you know, opaque. Like, you can't really see what's underneath her. She's just sort of a fun girl. Everything's on the surface, you know. I in, the, in the novel, she's, she's, she's less uh, substantial than she is than Carrie Mulligan made her on screen, right? Right, right. That's what I think. And I think that's why Mia Farrow was such a good Daisy, because she really did. She is kind of a blank slate. You know, she was mm-hmm. in that movie. Um, and I think Daisy is works best as a blank slate, where you project upon her, but behind her there's not a lot going on. There's, there is, but she's not exactly the most complex person. I agree with that. I can see that. I can also, but I also, in, that, in her defense, I will say that Gatsby has to have seen something in her in order to be obsessed with her. And so she has to exude something so that you can understand why he would go to all this trouble to, to get her and why Tom would want to go to so much trouble to keep her. Right. And then just... the, the payoff at the end for me is when you find out that she's really, that, that there's really not all that to her. If she, but judging from the decision that she makes, yeah. that's when the revelation comes that, there, that she's not worth, she wasn't worth it. I just didn't think she looked the part. I didn't think I thought she was she brought too much to it, so it confused the issue more. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that if you pick, I mean, it doesn't even have to be someone who's like Angelina Jolie beautiful, you know, not even like that, but just someone who exudes upper class. Like to me, Carrie Mulligan, when you meet her in person, she actually does. She's more like Daisy in person. Um, so intelligent and so warm and just just incredible in person and. Um, as you know she's she's just she's a she's a very very intelligent british woman you know and she's not a frivolous um beautiful you know i, I kind of see daisy as sort of a paris hilton type you know maybe mm. not as quite as tacky as paris hilton but sort of on that same level of like um she just represents a world you know her mere being and the way you look at her she represents a world you know the better ha- the better um the better half, you know, the 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 one percent, and a little bit oblivious to the fe- to the effect that she's having on the men around her, and oblivious to the to the, to the problems that are going on all around her too. With, yeah. with the, and- she'd be tough to cast. I, I mean, I was try. I thought of one actress that was perfect, and, and then it just slipped out of my mind. And I, I've been thinking about it ever since I saw it. Like, who would be a better Daisy than her? And I couldn't think of anybody. It was really hard to find somebody in my like not Scarlett Johansson, you know, certainly not. Um, Kirsten Dunst, maybe. She, even she is a maybe, maybe. But I mean, you're, you're thinking of someone who's extraordinary, you know, who yeah. walks into a room and like Grace Kelly, you know, someone like that. But um, we don't really have any Grace Kellys. Nope. Most of the actors. Well, I didn't mean to sidetrack us on Gatsby. I just wanted to uh, to just speak up. And, it, and it, Gatsby was never going to be a, a player in, at Cannes. Nobody ever expected it to, to walk away with any awards, I don't think. And it's probably not going to be a player for the rest of the year, except in some of the uh, design categories, right? And that's okay with me. I, but I think it served its purpose probably at Cannes because it was the fireworks. It was the fireworks mm-hmm. to set off the, the the gala, you know, festival. And and you, they, they, they look for that every year. Uh, they look for the for the big splashy expensive movie to to kick off the festival well that's a whole other part of it that you don't 
quite experienced in the same way as a member of the press because there's the big red carpet screenings every night and and you get the movie stars and the paparazzi go insane and the crowds show up just to get a glimpse of Leonardo DiCaprio and it's like this weird I mean I've seen red carpet stuff here in LA and this was nothing like that it was like it was like those times like 12 there's yeah. just something crazier about it. and 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 that's all a part of the festival too it's a part that you that I didn't see as much because I was going to the press screenings during the afternoon more Mm-hmm. Um, but you could hear the crowd screaming when you were waiting in line at one of the other theaters to get in to see the next film. Um, so you know that that, whole, that that's all a part of it, and it's an important part of it. And and, and I, it, it would be difficult to deny it. It just um, in, in in one way, um, it's it's glamour, it's Hollywood glamour that that there is that doesn't exist anymore in Hollywood because people will come to Cannes with their glittery long dresses and their high heels and their tuxedos hoping to get into one of these screenings and they'll stand there outside with a sign that says invitation and they, <laughs> they you know they're hoping that you'll give them their ticket and they're all dressed up you know mm. where where in hollywood in america do you see that you know the Nowhere. only gl- this is like this is the can is like the oscars every single night the way people dress up outside and they're all lined up and they're all the paparazzi are taking pictures of the, and there's loud music blaring. But then there's just so many people like, all dressed in like Oscar outfits walking up and down the streets, either trying to get in or they already have tickets or they do this every night that there's a screening in Cannes. You know, they don't do that at any other film festival. Mm-hmm. That's wow. That's extraordinary. Just to just to see that atmosphere and to be to have that going on around you, and to think about all of the stories of all the people who are who are who who are like on the sidelines. Right. Know? I know. I try to. That's one of the things I like to do is get my camera out and take pictures of the, them, both yeah. the people watching and the people dressed up. You know, who are just kind of standing there. You know, wanting to be a part of it. It's not Hollywood glamour. It's can glamour. It's hard to explain. It's like. Um, but it is so fancy, and it's such a relic. It's it's been this way for decades, you know, and it's not going away anytime soon. Uh, are these people? A lot of them uh, probably are uh, s- sort of somebodies, but a lot of them probably are really not anybody, right? They're not. Most of them aren't anybody. Yeah. They, they just... you, you would see like um, there was like a processional that with it where celebrities would approach down the street before they would hit the red carpet and every now and then somebody famous enough would show up and one of the paparazzi would jump in front of him and be following him snapping pictures and I would overhear and it would be somebody like such and some some French pop star or like somebody somebody I've never heard of or is probably not famous in this country but it's sort of like more like European celebrities that kind of thing yeah. a lot of there was a lot of that going on really totally so true they were taking pictures of people um, I mean, we're so that's that's the other thing I like about going there, and and I'm I'm you know I'm ashamed of this. I know that that I that all of the snooty you know international critics think that I'm a joke because of my limited sense of of international cinema and international movie stars. But it's true that you think if you're in Hollywood that that's it. You know, <laughs> the movies are Hollywood. That's it. If they're not famous in Hollywood, they don't count. You know. But there's a whole thriving industry of stars that never, ever get anywhere near Hollywood. I and mean, maybe they would like to. I don't know. But 
you know, you see them just walking down the carpet and all these people taking pictures of them, asking for their autographs. And you have because they no have idea. thousands and millions of fans back home, and they're right. they're well known in different parts of the world. But like you said, they will never make it here because for one reason, one reason or another, maybe their English isn't good, for instance, or whatever. You know, they're just never going to make it to Hollywood, and they, they don't need, probably a lot of them don't ever intend to or don't need to. They have their own uh, lavish, glamorous life in their own country. Yeah. But you're also probably seeing, probably too, mixed in uh, these people on the fringe. You're probably seeing some of the some of the best dressed prostitutes in the world. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm sure there's plenty of that going on. I mean, from on every level too. Like yeah, the really exactly. higher ups are like hanging around Leo DiCaprio. You know. <laughs> the I know. Really I like... saw that. Did you see that? He, <laughs> yes. Maybe you posted on Twitter that photograph of him on the yacht, and he's yeah. got like eight or nine gorgeous women around him in bikinis, and you don't recognize any of them. And who are they? Yeah, they they do that though. I've I've read about women they just let's go to can you know that they're uh-huh. they're remember craig when we would go to screenings we would see the bimbo brigade mm-hmm. and they would be like all dressed up just kind of hanging around waiting to meet somebody and they'd get in they they walk in with their really high heels and their long beautiful hair and and they you know just dress up and they fly to can they dress you know they wait to be invited to parties and stuff and get to know people and there's probably Probably a Bim Boy Brigade too that is probably less less <laughs> numerous, but they're probably there as well. The Bim Boys. The boys. <laughs> but those are all the critics. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear! So that was the first night. That was gasping. And what was the reaction at the end of the movie? Was it, it just was sort of was everybody just so exhausted that they didn't even have the energy to boo? Or they didn't what? boo. Silence. There was no booze. There was there was no applause. It was like silence. That was the weirdest thing. I think that was the only movie where there was dead silence at the end. I think people like, felt huh, so that happened. <laughs> yeah, they were too respectful to boo, but because, like you say, I mean, it's it's such a hu- it's such a brave attempt at something that you know you don't necessarily want to boo something like that. On the other hand, they didn't applaud either. No applause at all. Yeah. Usually there's some applause. <laughs> Zero <laughs> applause. Slow clap. <laughs> Not even. <laughs> Nothing. It was far from the worst movie that I saw there. Oh, God, no. no. Oh, well, that's uh, good to hear. I'm glad to hear that. And I'm actually, I would rather hear that there was no applause and no booze than to hear that there was a mixed reaction and that it was that it was a rude crowd You know, at the end of it. I'm kind of glad that they didn't really know how to respond, that it was almost like, Whoa! You know, well, what was all that about? The worst movie I saw by far was was uh, Nicholas Winding Refn's Only God Forgives. That was it for me. Number one worst, and then right after that, unfortunately, was by a woman director, and that was called A Castle in Italy. That was that was pretty bad too. But you got cut her some slack for being the writer, director, and star. Plus, she totally bears her her beaver. Oh, oh! I didn't hear about this. You, see, you didn't even you didn't cover that movie. You need to no, you because didn't... she's not like you know preteen. She's not like you know nineteen year old um, beautiful nubile French girl. You know, showing her labia. She's like you know forties big hairy bush. <laughs> Nobody cares about that. Classic seventies bush. <laughs> That's been a topic of conversation in this podcast for like four podcasts in a row now. <laughs> It's a running theme. She, yeah. I couldn't believe she showed her big hairy bush. The thing is, is she's totally um, Sarkozy's wife's sister, that woman. Oh, uh, wow. You know, his wife, that model. What's her name? Mm-hmm, I don't Whatever know. Whatever her name is. She that. married Sarkozy. That's why that movie got in there. I mean, it was so not deserving of 
being placed in main competition. But Too bad, is, because it's, it's not like women directors were well represented at the festival this year. No, she was the only one. She was the only one in the main competition, but in the uncertain regard, there were a lot of female directors, and none of them got paid any attention to by the end. So I liked the bling ring, actually. I really liked that one a lot. I liked the bling ring, and I liked the Claire Denis picture. Both of those were in certain regard. Yeah, if Claire Denis picture had been directed by a guy, I swear to God it would have been much more... Beloved. It makes you wonder why the selection committee did not did not want to include the Bling Ring and the Claire Denis film in in the competition. Well, the Claire Denis should have been. It is their choice, right? It, it should have been. Yeah, you know, I don't know how they decide that, and it did seem like sort of a slap in the face. But then I remembered maybe she's being punished for Marie Antoinette a couple of years ago. That that was famous for getting booed when it played at Cannes, which I think was a terrible response. But. Um, uh. Um, so maybe, you know, maybe that had something to do with it, but I don't know. Hmm. I don't know about Bling Ring. That does seem like it could be just on, on certain regard, but the, but the Claire Denis movie for sure should have been, I think should have been, um, included in the main competition, even though I slept all the way through. <laughs> yeah. Especially with her track record, her last couple of films have been really well regarded. So I think just based on that alone should have been enough to kick her up into the higher competition. I mean, if, uh, Paolo Sorrentino can get in every year. I don't see why she can't. Yeah. He, he, yeah. This year he had um, The Great Beauty. And previously he did the This Must Be the Place, the one with Sean Penn, and before that was Il Divo. And I think all three of them, if they weren't in competition, they were still in the festival, either in, in certain regard or maybe the competition. I can't remember which. Yeah, I could recognize with the Claire Denis movie that um it was interesting and then i was gonna back burner it and and watch it again when um when i was more able to stay awake because i could tell it was it had a lot of interesting things going on you have to tell the person that you're sitting next to like look if i doze off of my if I, my head starts to nod off you know just poke me wake me up don't let me sleep through this movie especially like if i start to snore or something there's nothing you can do they'd be poking you all throughout the movie right because there's no there's no way to stay awake i know what that's like it's just exhaustion and it's and it, it was a comp for me it was a, it's always a and it takes me it because i was so sleep deprived i didn't didn't quite kick in what was happening to me but the combination of jet lag and the little tiny coffees they serve. <laughs> it's like I drink these huge, strong cups of coffee every morning. And, you know, you switch to tiny little, teeny tiny little espressos, which have no caffeine hardly in them at all. Um, and you're naturally going to be tired, you know. So the combination of jet lag plus that plus this really comfortable, completely silent, dark theater, like no one talks. Mm-hmm. And you're just comfortable, and all of a sudden, you know, your head starts to drop. And the, the lullaby of another language. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And reading subtitles. Uh-huh. Um, if the movie's, I think if it's really, really good, it will keep you awake. But uh-huh. Or if it's really, really violent, like the Nicholas Winding Riefen movie that, I, you, that you didn't like, although some people did like it, but a lot of people are with you on that, that they didn't like it either. And it was booed, right? It was, it was it got, a very mixed, it got, got a mixed reaction at the end. It got a lot of enthusiastic applause. It did, mm-hmm. for sure. And I, it was really long and boring. I sort of nodded off a few times, I think. But, um, but it, had, it, it had its moments. Like, I think Craig and I both liked the, um, the Thai... Uh, butcher basically you could call him he has a knife and he just goes around slicing and executing people and anytime he shows up with the music and everything but it's such a repulsive film just really other than that about it um 
It's going to come as an unpleasant surprise to a lot of people who have never seen another Nicholas Winding Refn film before Drive, for sure, because it's much more like his earlier films, which actually he conceived of it before he did Drive, but Drive came along and he ended up making that first, but it's it's much... much, uh, Like the Pusher trilogy. Uh, yeah, and Bronson. Oh, really? Especially. Mm-hmm. But, but lacking the, the magnetic Tom Hardy performance that Bronson had. I mean, Brian Gosling was half asleep through the entire film. Yeah. He seems it, to it like was, to use him like that. He uses him as a cipher, sort of like. just. A, yeah, but it got carried away. I mean, it worked in Drive. He was kind of a blank slate in Drive, but this was like a blank catatonic slate. It was even, mm-hmm. it was just ridiculous. Yeah, and I think that that's one of the things that helped draw. You know, Drive was Carrie Mulligan, who was so good in it. And I should say also, Oscar Isaac was um, paired up with her in that, and then he's paired up with her again in Lewin Davis, by some funny coincidence. And the two of them couldn't be more different from performance to performance. Like, their work in Drive, totally different from their work in Lewin Davis. It's pretty interesting to see that, especially him, but both of them, really. She was different in Lewin Davis than I'd ever seen her before in anything. It was a really refreshing change. Um, I've got, I'd, I'd gotten a little tired of her 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 shtick. I mean, it was she she did something different with Shame, for sure, but um, this was even different from that. It was just a really nice, refreshing performance from her. It wasn't a huge part, but it made a big impact yeah. in Lewin Davis, I mean. And when we went to the round table, she was great, but for some weird reason, Justin Timberlake just kept doing all the talking. Like she just uh, kind of sat there, and he and he mostly talked for her. That's she just them, right? That. That's how he is, and that's how she is. She seems to be really demure, and he seems like the kind of person who just won't shut up because he's really he's he's just really uh, um, outgoing and and a little bit full of himself and his own words, right? Yeah, loves to talk, loves to flirt, loves to kid. Yeah, and charming. I'm sure it's really charming and probably really entertaining. But it's a shame that that they paired them of all people to pair that they would choose to put them together. <laughs> he's weird looking in real life too because he's such a big head. <laughs> I didn't know that he had that big of a head. He doesn't. You know I'm I'm gonna. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's interesting that he has a big head. I would not have thought that. <laughs> no, but I mean, I was struck by it because usually he doesn't look that way on screen at all. No, he doesn't. I've only really seen. Yeah, I haven't seen him that much. He hasn't. I've only seen him in a couple of movies on screen. And on television, he doesn't look like it. It didn't didn't strike me that way in the Social Network. Mm-mm. But you know, people. I guess is it just because it, is his stature his stature not very big? Do you think? Is, no, he's normal is, size, but he just has a really big head. It was weird. But um, but she is just drop dead gorgeous in person. Unbelievably so, I thought. Yeah, you can tell in the photo, in the candid photographs, the paparazzi photographs of her that she she almost looks like a different person in casual red carpet situations than she does in a movie. Yeah, uh, she looks she looks bigger in a movie. She looks so so delicate in 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 real life. Yeah, exactly. She looks very delicate, and the camera. I've never really seen a cinematographer capture her. I've never seen it that they could capture the way she looks in person. She's just <laughs> one of those people that. She's ethereal, and it can't it can't really be. Ca- she's good, and she ca- it reads on screen. She looks great and everything, but it just whatever it is that she has in person, it doesn't read. She's mm. the second movie star that I've seen in person that is actually more beautiful off screen than she is on screen. Oh, who's the other one? Marion Cotillard. <laughs> I don't see how uh, she could be. More I know it doesn't seem possible, but there's just something about her. There was something uh, in person. She had she was more delicate and ethereal seeming. 
Yeah, I bet. Maybe uh, because Cotillard, maybe the camera does, is able to capture what, what it is that, that Cotillard exudes, and it's not the, the camera. She hasn't found a cinematographer yet uh, who, can, uh, who can find that and Carrie Mulligan. Right. That. She's just yeah. got such an expressive face, and so when she when she's when she's using that, it changes the way she looks. And when we were she was interviewing with us, she didn't really wasn't really showing a lot of expression. She was just kind of sitting there, and that's when I noticed how like her face is like a like a porcelain doll. Like it doesn't even look real. <laughs> you know. I want to say wow, but I've said wow like 15 times already. I can't <laughs> I think, keep saying wow. <laughs> I have to think of something else. I, I will say, though, it's interesting that you say that, that, uh, that Only God Forgives seemed long because I thought, I wonder how long it is. It didn't strike me as the kind of movie that would be long. So it's I looked only 90 it up. minutes. It's and 90 it minutes. Like so that's what I'm going to say. It must really be awfully tedious if it seems long if it's only 90 tedious. minutes. Tedious. It's like a movie you could describe the plot in five sentences. You know, well, really you did her, either someone either you said it or someone else said it. I think it must have been you. You said it's like it, take the take the last thirty minutes of Django Unchained and expand it to movie length. No, to Terrence Malick's Tree of Life. <laughs> Turn oh, it I, thought, I thought you meant like I thought you meant the bloodbath part, the ending, or yeah, the climax it, of Django Unchained. No, but then put put Terrence Malick on it. Make Terrence Malick be the director. That same oh, long stretches of wordless dialogue where everything's supposed to be. It's, oh, but Tree of Life is a masterpiece, right. you know, compared. I mean, they're not even... I'm just saying that Malick style is what... This is, this is Tree of Death. Tree of Death. Because, it's like It seemed to me like it was very derivative of David Lynch and Terrence Malick um, and Quentin Tarantino all in one. Like, it just didn't feel original to me. I, I was like, I've seen all this before, and it's not as good, you know? There's some Kubrick in there, too. And Kubrick. But there always is. Yeah, really David Lynch, too. I mean, big time. But no, sorry, don't cut it. It doesn't cut it. But, you know, some of the shot setups are beautiful and the sets were really pretty. You know, he's good with color and composition. He's just very shallow. He should be directing car commercials. Sorry to say. <laughs> it's a horrible thing to say. Well, yeah, let's wait and see what he does next before we condemn him to car commercials. Because <laughs> maybe this was just an off. Maybe this is like you know not a not a good effort from him. But I do I've liked other things he's done in the past, and so I, I'm not going to write him off. Yeah, no, don't write him off. And and it could just be my taste, you know. I, but uh, but what I saw from that was a very very shallow, um, basically a serial killer movie, kind of like you know I'm going to do I'm going to make a movie that's going to get you off. If you like violence, you know. Well, how about uh, Kristen Scott Thomas? Well, she's funny, um, but at the end of the day, she's just part of the part of the violence porn. You know, she's mm-hmm. just swallowed up in it. Um, just she's good. She does the best with it. She's the most interesting part of it for sure, but it's yeah. a waste of her talents, and she's much classier than that material. Yeah, I, I did read something somewhere that made me stop and think about the movie in a slightly different way, which I hadn't read before, which was that it was sort of a take on Hamlet. Um, mm. And if that's the case, then, first of all, the Thai guy isn't in Hamlet. There's no character like that in Hamlet that's, like, knocking people off one by one. <laughs> but <laughs> right. the mother But as far as the mother-son thing goes. Yeah. yeah. And if it is a remaking of, of Hamlet, I'd like to watch it again. For that reason, I'd suffer through it again just to see. Uh, I, you know, I don't think 
I don't think comparing it to Hamlet makes it seem any better. It actually <laughs> makes it seem like an even bigger disaster if that's what they were shooting for and that's what they came up with. Wow. Well, I mean, I could see East of Eden maybe because there are two brothers. Um, hmm. It started out like you thought it was going to be good brother, bad brother. Um, here's the bad brother, totally horrible. And then here's the good brother and kind of like a, a Cain and Abel kind of thing. And But... It doesn't really. I don't want to spoil it too much, but it's it, that's not what it is. It's not good brother, bad brother. And so that was like what? Just day two or day three when when you saw that? We'd had no. a couple of great movies under our belts already, so it wasn't as big of a disappointment as it would have been if we'd seen it like the first or second day. Yeah, what was, was the date when you arrived? You, you arrived on what a Monday or Tuesday? God, I can't remember. Uh, it's all a it's all a blur. But yeah. but I do remember that being toward sort toward the end. Only oh, God okay. forgives was yeah. the second to the last of the co- competition screenings, and I think the last competition screening we saw was um, in the morning. Was uh, what was it, Craig? What was the last one for you? It was Nebraska. Oh yeah, yeah. You skipped it, right? right I slept right. in. <laughs> I knew I would see that one when I uh, shortly anyway, so I wasn't as, as worried about that, and I had other stuff to do that morning. I was kind of already starting to check out in my head by that point. Right, right. But um, you know, it, Nebraska was interesting because uh, my first uh, sampling of the initial buzz was was pretty lukewarm, but I think that was just the bubble that I was looking in because I'm looking at the um, Screen Daily every year does a um, does a grid where they have like six or seven critics rating all the the films in competition. And Nebraska actually among the British critics was was up until before the last four films was the third highest rated after um, Lewin Davis and uh, Blue is the warmest color. But is that when after they saw the movie? Yeah. They rated mm, it yeah. highly, yeah. But, yeah. They, but before they had seen the the, the the last two or three days of yeah, they they didn't rate the, the chart that I'm looking at doesn't rate the immigrant, the James Gray picture, um, Michael Cole Haas, Venus and Fur, or only Lovers Left Alive. But it, it rates all the other ones. And out of four stars, um, Nebraska got a three point one, Lewin Davis got a three point three, and um, Blue is the warmest color got a. Three point six. Huh. A- average average rating among the nine or ten critics. I'll never forgive myself for not seeing that movie. I'm so bitter and disappointed and hateful about the whole thing because I missed it. <laughs> Just you, you it tried. Ruined, you it really almost did try. ruined my trip. And, did, and but I and you had work to do. You know, I know, you but had pressure it, it on you to get a review in because that was a review they were waiting for. They were waiting for Nebraska that day. They I were know, but I you. made the fatal error of not going when Craig went, and I could have gone, but mm. I thought it was that other movie. I could have seen it the night before, and I ended up going home and just laying there on my bed. Mm. So yeah, I'm, I'm pretty bummed out about that. I haven't had like a major can catastrophe, a can catastrophe like that mm. in a while. This was this was a bad one. You never want to miss the movie that ends up winning the. <laughs> the <bond. laughs> I'm usually the one that does that. I, I'll, I, I'm always wh- wherever the buzzy movie is. That's where I'm not always. And this one, th- like I was saying before, I was I waited in line in the rain, and I almost got out of line like three times because it was raining, and I was looking ahead at this three-hour movie that I knew nothing about. I think some people knew that it was the hot lesbian flick beforehand. I had no idea. All I knew about it was that it was directed by the guy who did The Secret of the Grain, which ironically is a movie that I didn't like very much. It was a widely beloved arthouse flick that I liked about two-thirds of, and I thought it kind of fell apart in the final third. 
but I kind of figured, well, maybe I got that one wrong, so I want to give this guy another shot. Um, but it was three hours. I was already soaking wet, and I'm thinking, you know what? If I, I, I almost got out of line, but I was first in line, and there was no way I was going to give up my spot just no on principle. Way. So Plus that was the, the only way that I the, stayed. The last email I got from you was, no, I'm going to see this French movie, Shoot Me Now, or something like that. That's all cut to. And the winner of the Palme d'Or. <laughs> it just snowballed. It was like my worst nightmare. But um, but I'm glad that, that it, it turned. I mean, I, I'm a little bit creeped out by all the sex stuff from the gross middle-aged male critics writing about it, but. Um, I think especially when you have to hear it secondhand and when you have to read about it in tweets, which is not exactly the most poetic way to talk about a movie in a tweet. Well, I also it's, heard it's from a lot of... To, it's going to uh, be reduced to its least common... But I had moment. to listen to a lot of men. You know, it's mostly men in Cannes writing about movies. Mm. It's not a lot... There are not a lot of women. No, hardly any women. And so I had to hear these breathlessly describing it, how... You know how intense it is, how erotic it is, and how, you know, they they you know they go on for twenty minutes, and that's all they were really talking about. But then, of course, they would feel guilty and they would go, "Oh no!" But it's a really, really great movie about you know her finding herself and she becomes a teacher, and it's a really <laughs> sweet, intense emotion. But, oh my God, you should see what they do! <laughs> it's not as I mean, I've, I, there's been some movies where they where they show actual penetration and stuff like that, but that's pretty uncommon, mm-hmm. and it approaches that level for sure, and it and it just goes on for such a long time and it actually I kept thinking to myself as I was watching it, it it's not that it was making me uncomfortable or anything but it, it I, I was wondering if the movie would have been as good or if it would have been the same movie without that because there were times when it became ridiculous and it just they I think I said in my review that the the non-sex scenes were handled in such a naturalistic matter-of-fact realistic kind of way that the the sex scenes were too polished and it it just seemed sort of a betrayal of the of all the other scenes to me Mm -hmm. the 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 performers seemed too good at what they were doing especially since this girl is only supposed to be 18 or 19 at the time that this is taking place she I, i mean i know People are much more sophisticated at that age now than I was back then, but I don't think that they were porn star sophisticated, and that's the, almost the way it comes across here, and it just seemed artificial to me. I think they've probably watched a lot of porn to, to prepare, maybe, you know, rather than being experienced, although who knows? And that's probably, you know, a lot of real-life kids watch a lot of porn before they actually have sex, and so that could explain why, you know, that kids today maybe are a lot more adept at than, than, than kids were 20 years ago. Yeah, yeah, and that was actually sort of a, a thing in the Francois Ozon film, uh, Young and Beautiful, where she ends up becoming a prostitute, and she's very young. She actually did watch porn, and I think that's where she did get most of her ideas from, so that makes uh, that makes a lot of sense. It just it just felt discordant to me mm-hmm. with this film. It, 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 it almost felt like two different movies. I mean, you'll, you'll have to see it. To sort of know what I'm saying, but I sort of wish that they had cut it out, only because I think that it does the movie a disservice. It turns it into what it is now, which is it's Ryan. I finally figured out why our traffic has spiked on the <laughs> Those, website. The, the photographs? No, the, it was just any mention the, of that movie. Mention I did. Movie, right. I did a search uh-huh. term, and it's like uh-huh. the movie is is, is like three thousand of of the the hits but then like you know of the actresses names all with nude naked nude scene love scene lesbian teenage you know Mm. um it just feel like with men you know it's it's really hard to 
not be turned on by that. Obviously, <laughs> you know, you can't, and, and women too. I mean, it's, it just, mm-hmm. I think it's distracting and it becomes the main thing. And I think that it, that it, movie, it seems like it offers so much more. It does seem like that. the thing, only thing that people are talking about first, but if it gets people to see the movie and to then to think, think about other things, and I do think that maybe there, maybe there is a little bit of value in, in the fact that this has never been done before in a movie, so let's do it and let's show people how it can be done and be done really, really well. And I think another movie that did that that was probably really shocking to people at the time is uh, Last Tango in Paris. You know, it was the same way. People went to see it because they had heard about the the more purient things about it, but they came away with a lot more than because they they probably wouldn't have seen it without without if they hadn't heard about the sex. Yeah, my problem is is that movie wasn't Maria Schneider like twenty seven or something. Mm, yeah, definitely. Um, I see what you mean. I, yeah. For me, the the age part of it bothered me more than anything else and that's because i'm a mother of a teenage girl and -hmm. all of her friends are sort of exploring their sexuality now and i kind of feel like it's not the business of an older man to be delving into that world i just it creeps me out on the other hand although the actresses are are older than they than the people they depict she's 19 no she's 19 she's 19 now Right now, yeah. but I thought the that other they were supposed to be older. like sixteen or something in the movie. That starts Maybe when I... they're fifteen, but it goes up mm-hmm. until they're in their early twenties. But nonetheless, so she's nineteen, so she was a teenager mm-hmm. when she's filming these sex scenes, and that's pretty scandalous in a way. But yeah. um, but I have to just drop it and just think that okay, yes, gross guys are going to be beating off to this movie. Everybody's going to be racing to watch it just so they can watch that one scene, and you know they're not going to watch the whole three-hour movie. They're just going to watch the sex scene. Okay, fine. They can see sex 24-7 on the Internet. It's not like it's hidden from view. There's porn, lesbian porn everywhere, both real lesbian porn and and tailored-to-men lesbian porn, you know. Uh Um, It's not going to be taken out. I think that it's a little bit of a revolution, because we're enduring right now, we're, we're living through a, a sexual revolution in a way, because I see it at my daughter's school, you know, and it's, it's lesbian sex, you know, it's, it's, this is, this is their, this is the world that is emerging into the mainstream. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's teenagers, and that bothers me, I wish it was adult women, but they are adult women technically, but you know, mm-hmm. I wish they were in their mid-twenties, I wouldn't have any problem with it at all. Um, and I don't even have a problem with it. I'm just telling you why it makes me uncomfortable. Me. Just me. But I'm not saying it shouldn't have been made or it's it's terrible. I'm just saying it icks me out a lot. But um, that not that it not that these women are having sex and that the sex is beautiful and they're expressing themselves and they're, you know, going through these these, you know, mini revolutions it's 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 the it's 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 the male involvement it's the male gaze the straight male gaze that's the part of it that icks me out Uh, and they can't help it obviously but but i feel like it should be about lesbians and women and not about yet another movie to turn men on you know what i mean Mm because there's enough i absolutely do understand we shouldn't you throw know. the baby out with the bathwater because it is a positive gay portrayal and a positive, healthy uh, portrayal of a of a lesbian relationship. And in an era when, even in France right now, they're protesting on a massive scale uh, a gay marriage law that just passed. That that if something like this can further mainstream. Um, uh, uh, Kinds of relationships that up to up till recently have have had to exist on the fringes of of society, then it's a good thing. But everything you say about it is is right, and they're all things that 
I was worried about myself as I was watching it. If, if it were a woman directing the picture, I would have felt a lot different about it. And, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a scene in the middle of it somewhere where she's, where the main character is, is at this party with her, with her girlfriend's friends, and they're talking about art and about, um, about how historically art has always featured depictions of female pleasure and, and, and how, and how you never see depictions of male pleasure in art. And it was odd to me because the, it, it didn't answer, it didn't, it didn't answer the question with the most obvious answer, which is that, well, that's because art has always been done by men, and that's what men like to look at. Yeah. So on, mm-hmm. on one hand, the movie seemed to be sort of justifying itself by bringing that up without actually seeing the sort of fatal flaw in its argument. And this movie, possibly disturbingly, just kind of continues that trend. It does. It's disturbing and- because because of the people who you will say who who we know that are going to watch it only for that reason. But if it if it does benefit uh, teenage um, girls who are having um, questioning their uh, finding their own sexual identity, if it has that beneficial effect, and if other people see the movie for for reasons beyond. Um, the sexual, then that's a good thing too. So, I, like, yeah. I, I think that it, it's a. I don't. I just. I. I don't really. So I haven't seen it, so I don't have a problem with it. Like, like, uh, like, and I don't think I will have a problem with it. It reminds me a little bit of the, uh, uh, and I think it's the last movie that involves something like this so so explicitly that it also caused quite a stir. I guess it, it was personal best. Remember with Mariel Hemingway in like the early 1980s, uh-huh. and she was a teenager, I think then, or maybe at least she played a teenager. She might have been 20 or 21 when she made it. But that was another situation where that really caused an uproar. And then after that happened, nobody ever made another movie like that for the next 30 years. Well, this isn't quite causing an uproar yet because it's French, and you know. But the but I think that that. You know, it's such a fine line. I agree with you that that it would be great for women like my, you know, one of my daughter's friends to see this movie. I think it would be mind blowing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also felt, as a woman, really suffocated in Cannes by the by the amount of depictions of young sexual women, too many of them, and at the same time, the dominance of male directors and the dominance of male critics and just mm-hmm. i felt like women were pieces of meat on display you know and it was really uncomfortable making it was something that i've never experienced there before because though yes it's always dominated by uh, men and it's always mostly male directors they don't have so many films that are about young teenage sexuality like this there were you know several of them and i don't know it just kind of it was a bit much, I thought, that he would have a 20-minute lesbian sex scene in the middle of the movie. I mean, did it really have to be 20 minutes long? Well, in fairness to him, every action that he filmed was long and drawn out. I mean, the, the whole first 45 minutes of the film was, was her getting up in the morning and going to school. You right. know, it was just one of those movies that just kind of tracked everyday things in minute detail. Right. So, the, so that attention was not out of place. It just um, so there are sequences, other sequences that take place almost in real time. You're saying, yeah, kind of, and and it just it just um, he he's very deliberate and and gives every scene space and room to breathe and isn't in a hurry to go from one thing to the next. And that's it's actually the beautiful part of his filmmaking. Um, 
But. You know, for the last, I would say for the last probably, since at least the early 90s, there's probably been 10 or 15 or even 20 movies about gay teenage males coming out, you know? Right. And a lot of those yeah. are fantastic movies, but they don't dwell on the sex. The sex is actually, you, hard, you don't see a lot of the sex. But those, I think those movies have been really important in helping uh, gay, young gay men, um, is that, you know, probably if you see a movie like that when you're 15 or 16 years old, it can probably really help change your life For to make sure. you feel like it, it, to help validate you. And I know personally a lot of girls where this would help bring them out of the closet. But I also know just from my own curiosity's sake that there are two kinds of approaches to lesbianism in film. And there's the male-centric approach, which is the way Craig has described this movie as being. And there's the lesbian perception of things and that are different and that they're very different lesbian porn is different from straight men looking at lesbian porn you know like quote-unquote lesbian that i listen obviously dan savage talks about this a lot he says you know the a lot of lesbians call him up and say i I, we can't watch this shit because it's all designed for men it's all Mm -hmm. and so they prefer to watch more authentic lesbian porn and I feel like with this movie, it's very much not a female experience. It's very much a male experience. If you took those two characters and you, you cast them as young men, for instance, there's no way it would be as absorbing and compelling to this male, very dominant male critical community, I don't think. It I just think- dawned on me. There was a movie just three or four or five years ago called Water Lilies about a, lesbi- a young teenage lesbian couple, and it was directed by a woman. It's yeah. much more subtle sexually yeah. than this was. Yeah. I don't think yeah. any woman would have had that kind of sex scene go on like that. Mm-hmm. That's a guy thing. Yeah. Well, in his defense, he based it on a graphic novel written by a lesbian, and I don't know what the content of the graphic novel was. I, I don't know if he took things and exaggerated them from what they were in the graphic novel or if he was just following the script as it was laid out to him. I have no idea. Yeah. And I will say too, the movies I was talking about, the the, the dozen or so, really, really, really special m- movies about uh, gay teenage uh, young men coming out. Uh, almost all of those are directed by gay men. Right, that's it. And so for yeah. this, it's very complicated situation. And I think that. And so the French um, um, submission for best foreign language film will be between this film and and um, La Passe, right? Oh God, really? Is that? I, that's my understanding. Probably, unless something else comes along between now and the end of the year that 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 they decided is more is more Oscar friendly. Oh well, but they're going to pick Le Passe over this one, right, Craig? Wouldn't you say? Oh yeah, for sure. And if you look at already who the American distributors are going to be, you can already see which one's going to end up winning, and it's going to be the past because that's Sony Pictures Classics. That's the only film that they picked up out of the festival. Whereas Blue is the warmest color went to Sundance Selects, which doesn't exactly have a Oscar marketing arm to shake a stick at. So have they ever done have they ever had an Oscar candidate before? I can't think. They've had a couple of documentaries that have made it in, but only on their merits and not because of any hard campaigning on their part. Does that mean we'll get to see it on Sundance Channel, do you think? Probably so, right? Probably Yeah, it might show up on yeah. demand yeah. even. Yeah. So oh, I mean, it's I mean, gonna it'll be... probably play theatrically in New York or Los Angeles and but then it'll probably be on demand. It's probably going to be too controversial even for France now, you know, and and then the Oscars. You know how they are about controversy. Nonetheless, can we just take a moment and appreciate that a Steven Spielberg-led jury picked 
blue is the warmest color, and nobody. I know everybody that. seems so confident that he would pick something really sentimental and 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 you know tame and safe. Right, and he did the exact opposite. I know. I love that. <laughs> it's like to me that was the best thing that happened the whole time. Was and I've heard this. So tired of seeing people underestimate him. Everybody said he would never pick that movie. And I wonder if, if the movie's gone down a notch in some people's esteem after that, after he picked it. <laughs> Probably some people, but who cares about that type of person that would think that way, right? <laughs> but don't you think that they would? Uh-huh, they would for sure. Because yeah. it's not their movie Probably anymore. Probably skeptical of it now. <laughs> now they have to share it with Steven Spielberg. <laughs> yeah, it's tainted. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. And there's no glowing fingertip in this movie, right? <laughs> no, well, maybe there is glowing. Well, <laughs> after <laughs> the 20th t- minute, I think there was some glowing going on. A glowing tongue tip. Yeah. No. Oh, oh dear, oh dear. But anyway, it was it was a, a quite a. I mean, Craig is really lucky to have been part of a history making moment. Unfortunately, I missed out on it. But it it, it is it is pretty cool to be at a can where a movie like that comes out, you know, kind of once in a... I, I think that the one movie, like, four months, three weeks, and two days or whatever it was, was like that. It, it blew through can just like this one did. It, um, I wasn't there for that. But it was... It, I remember it made it all the way over here. People were talking about it. And, of course, it didn't get nominated. It didn't get... Cons- it wasn't... It either wasn't submitted by the country or it didn't get chosen by the Academy, but... But it was a big the, deal. The abortion movie, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, I think that they decided for. I think it was a pretty big scandal that year that they they that they snubbed it. That they 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 didn't choose it as one of the selections. After all the international acclaim that it got, mm. it was just too controversial for them. Right, and this movie is feels like it's following in that movie's footsteps, in my mm-hmm. opinion. Yeah, I think out of out of the um, out of the warm intellectual bubble that is the Cannes Film Festival, I don't think it's going to. It's it's not going to um, be quite as warmly received, I don't think. But it's great that they didn't miss the opportunity that probably this is one of the most important, significant um, um, gay, lesbian movie that's come along in decades. And it would have been really pretty shameful if they hadn't chosen it, if they had chosen something, if they had gone another direction. Because when will there ever be another movie? Uh, when will they ever have another chance that's this good? Well, what I hope is that I hope that it doesn't set a new bar for younger hotter sex um Mm. i don't mind hotter sex i can totally go with that and roll with it but the younger part bothers me like we're always talking about how we wish there was more sex in american movies and and so so sanitized but but we would like for them to be grown-ups I would love that. I mean, I think it's there's nothing wrong with it. It's just if if the bar needs to be set, a pretty soon next time it's going to be fourteen year olds, you know, mm-hmm. and that's going to be okay. That kind of thing, you know, is um, or is it going to be like the sexuality of a, of a young child next? You know, it won't be probably. Mm-hmm. But I'm just saying, like, if it moves in that direction, that that would be depressing. But if it moves in the direction of of you know not being ashamed of sexuality and bringing it back to the to, to mainstream film that would be cool like the seven whenever you push the limits right whenever you push the limits and break through the envelope and and and, and set a new boundary then that sets a new boundary that someone else wants to cross right exactly right and he probably wouldn't be getting this kind of a claim if they were older because mm. it wouldn't be as shocking mm. 
if they were in their tw- if they were twenty. It couldn't be a kind of coming of age. It could be a movie. Let's say, I know so many women who became lesbians after their marriages. You know, like they were married and then after a long time, they're just like, wait a minute, I'm a lesbian. So mm-hmm. I don't think anyone's ever made that movie. You know. Right. I've not. There was the other movie that they made where guys have done that before. I mean, there was there was the Sunday Bloody Sunday and and uh, some other movie of, um, in the early '80s tried that too, an American movie. Yeah, but there's no way you're going to get these people that were interested in this movie if they were old, older. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just not going to happen. And these women are beautiful. These young women, they're just stunningly beautiful. And and the one Adele is really kind of. Um, like childlike in the movie and she's grown up a lot since then uh, she grows up in the course of the movie that's one of the interesting things about it she's actually believable as a 15 or 16 year old when it first starts and totally believable as a 23 24 year old is which i think is what she's supposed to be when it ends she she mm-hmm. literally ages on the screen and it's all about her performance just the way she carries herself yeah but huh. yeah there's there's a lot of um I'm surprised that more people aren't talking about some of the sticky moral questions of it, no pun intended. They're not. They wouldn't. No, it would be too embarrassed to. Like, it's not hip and cool to talk that way. It was left up to me and Manola Dargas to be the, the buzzkills. Um, you know, um, uh, oh, I forgot what I was just going to say. Never mind. Sorry. Okay. Oh, I know what I was going to say. It was actually quite a... Um, a year for queer cinema at Cannes like that behind the candelabra, I think is, is the one that is more of the good counter for the protests in France about gay marriage, because that one to me really is about, um, a couple that had to pretend that he was his adopted son in order to be married. Mm -hmm. And that was a relationship really that should have been about marriage, gay marriage, not about, you know, um, discovering their sexuality so much as, and the damage that that kind of repression can do to to people who are already on rocky psychological footing, uh, it can really mess people up with trying to, to to have that facade that they try to portray to the public. Yeah, and I kept thinking as I was watching it how much different their relationship could have turned out if they lived under a societal norm instead of having to hide from who they were, if they could have embraced who they were and dealt with their marital problems in the same way that heterosexual couples are allowed to. I mean, it it frayed and came apart, but you kind of feel like if they had only had a chance that they could have made it work like, like millions of people do. Mm-hmm. And Stranger by the Lake was the third one, which I don't think, Craig, neither of us saw that, right? Uh, no, I didn't. That's supposed to be really, really good. That's like a gay thriller, you know? Yeah. Somebody's falling in love with someone who, at a, in a cruising area who may be a serial killer, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Really want to see it. I heard really great things about it. So that was three movies um, in Cannes that dealt very specifically with gay <clears throat> themes, you know, and they weren't marginalized. They were in the main, they were right in the main competition, two of them. And won prizes. One, yeah. I think the, the Stranger by the Lake won Best Director or, or something in, in, in certain regard. Mm-hmm. So. So, but, but wasn't Michael Douglas great as Liberace, though? Unbelievably, I think it's his best role. You might have said oh, yeah. that in review, but I've never seen him better. I've never seen him really act as as much and as as deeply as I've seen him in in, in this movie as, as he's ever done in his entire career. Yeah. I was really impressed. 
Matt Damon was great too, but he was much closer to what I already expect from him than what Douglas was. I never would have guessed in a million years, five years ago, say, or even a couple of years ago, that Michael Douglas would be capable of that performance in order to play that um, flamboyant of a character and not make him too cartoony and still make him a human being at his heart was just amazing to me. And he had such um, sensitivity. Yeah, he really did, and and he actually teared up in the press conference. He was crying because um, he said, you know, thank you, Steven Soderbergh, for giving me this part right after, you know, his cancer diagnosis. He got the, he, he offered it to him, and um, apparently mm-hmm. when they were, on, when they were uh, on the set of Traffic was the first time that Soderbergh ever said, you know, you should play, have you, have you thought about playing Liberace? And who knows why he, he doesn't even know why he said it. I mean, maybe mm-hmm. something about mm-hmm. Michael Douglas made him think he could do it, you know. Well, there's a little bit of a physical similarity, and there's a, actually there's a little bit of the, the vocal characteristic, too, that comes through, that there's a blend of uh, something about the way they speak, the way they spoke, even though Liberace was much more uh, gushy, you know, and there's uh, Michael Douglas has had that in other movies that I've seen, and it blended together really, well, really, really well. He played him as such a nice man because, according to Soderbergh and everybody, like nobody ever said a bad thing about him. Like apparently, he was just really, really nice all the time, you know, mm-hmm. and really seemed happy all the time. Really seemed like he was in a really great mood all the time and happy with his life. And who wouldn't be? Right. I mean, in spite of the fact that he had to, he had to hide so much of his life. He he had it made. You know, he had all the comforts and and luxury that anybody could ever dream of. I think that he probably was. I think that you have, you have to sort of. Uh, it looks look look askance at the way that he uh, traded for a younger model all the time, you know. But but that's something that that all men do, gay or straight. It's not right. it's not unusual that guy, that the guys do that. But that's the only thing they sort of you know is uh, not very admirable about him. But that was his taste, you know. What are you gonna yeah. do? Yeah. Well, and again, it's that's that's one of the consequences of of living a, a marginalized existence, kind of. If you if your lifestyle is embraced and you can participate in all of the, you know, marriage traditions, then maybe you, you would tamp down those instincts. But and it would help sustain it. And you also have to say in his defense that that he seemed to be staying in love with, with Scott as long as Scott was worthy of him. But as soon as Scott started to spiral out of control, then, of course, you're going to lose interest in someone like that mm-hmm. who's, who's yeah. only doing who's, who, for, for, uh, for reasons probably beyond his own control to get, who got into drugs and stuff like that. But that's, he also didn't, no longer... have, he didn't have... Um, he wasn't anything. Scott couldn't be anything. Like that was one of the problems for him was that they didn't treat him with respect because he was what was he? You know, mm-hmm. he was mm-hmm. like the boy toy. He didn't. He Just couldn't the be the latest beefcake. Yeah, he couldn't be the wife. He they couldn't refer to him as the significant other, and that's where marriage, I think, can really be important. Is when you're involved with somebody powerful like that mm-hmm. because you're going to be taken care of. You're yeah, going to have status. That's validating. Wouldn't he have to be wife? It would be husband, husband, because he seemed to be sexually at least. He was the dominant person in in bed, and so in more than more so, in spite of the fact that he was the one who was taken care of financially, uh, it would be more of a husband, husband relationship. But that, but that, again, that they can't that they can't reveal to anyone. Right, but he's investing all that time, and in a in a straight marriage, then the and they were married. You know, she would just go off mm-hmm. and do her Beverly Hills thing or whatever while he entertained. 
younger models, whatever, mm-hmm. you know. Right. And, okay, mm-hmm. judge them if you want, but at least the mm-hmm. wife has something. She has, you know, husband, whatever, you know, has um, security and status. And has a claim on what what she has, what she ha- uh, the support that she's given her partner and, and legal claim to, to uh, financial, you know, compensation. Right, if it whereas falls Scott apart. was just left high and dry at a certain point. Yeah, and he didn't like that people just didn't, like, what are you? He's like, oh, I'm the animal trainer. I'm the chauffeur. I'm, you know, what am I? By the end, he just was so easily discarded because, you know, there was no, he had nothing holding him to him. And you don't have to be gay, gay, gay couples or straight couples don't have to be millionaires to, to go through this same situation. You can be on any economic level, you know, can, this can happen. You know, it, it's, it's more melodramatic and more, more, more fun to watch. It's a lot more entertaining to watch it happen to millionaires, but, but it can happen to anyone at any, at any, at any status. Yeah. I just love it. He was like, oh, my baby boy. <laughs> His dog called baby boy. It was yeah. so cute. I, I love that scene. I loved all of his dogs. I could just... and to hear them yapping in the background in some scenes, right? <laughs> so realistic. That's exactly yeah. how it would be. I love that. I loved how he loved to cook, and I love the scene where he shows him without his hair. He's not, and, just, and he's in the bathroom, and he's naked. He's just letting it all hang out. You know, casual about it. Totally unselfconscious, and just like this is me, and you, you know, I love you for who you are. So obviously, you're going to love me for who I am. Yeah. Not real, not recognizing the fact that 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 Scott is like re- recoils from it when because he doesn't even recognize him at first. Yeah. It's that's the one. It's, it was amazing to me how really almost gothic it was, how garish and and ghoulish, and some parts of it were, you know, like especially like the plastic surgery um, sequences, you know? I know. That was hard to watch, that part. I know. But that's another part of the movie. That's another comment that it was making about that sort of... of, um, need to to maintain the, the youth, you know. Yeah, I know. I, Rob very Lowe, few movies, very few movies deal with that. Right, right. I just that was so funny. He's like, I want him to you to make him look like this. <laughs> he wants him to look just like him. <laughs> and then he gets later on, he gets so many. My fucking face! I don't even have my face. <laughs> Rob Lowe was amazing, wasn't he? Yeah, he was great. He was yeah. great. What a what a cameo for him. God, yeah. I just love it because you know the it really is nice to see them sort of lay out the plastic surgery thing, um, you know, with men because usually you just see it with women, but mm. it's a huge and thriving industry with men. Obviously, as we talked about last time with um, Michael Cimino. Hmm. Um. And in the book that we uh, both love so much, uh, Beautiful Ruins, the producer goes through that so that he looks like a wax figure or something. He doesn't look yeah. like preserved in, in you know, formaldehyde or something. And I think they used CGI on um, on Michael Douglas, didn't they, t- to make him look? Because after his operation, he looked great. <laughs> he looked. I know. I don't see how they could possibly have done that with makeup or any. Uh, must have. You know, there must yeah. be. And I think in the last, the final scenes, we won't. For people who haven't seen it yet, uh, we won't have to won't have to reveal that. But in, I think there was CGI in the in the be- the, yeah. the bedside scenes at the end too. And then I guess we should just say that um, the reason the movie wasn't distributed theatrically was because no studio would was willing to take it on. I, I suspect the the theme of it, the gay themes, but also the um, 
that Soderbergh's recent movies, other than Magic Mike, hadn't really been making money. Um, but Magic Mike made a shitload of money. Yeah, although I have to say that I can sort of understand, if I was a studio executive, I would wonder who would openly go see this movie, what kind of people would line up in the box office and the lottery at the multiplex to, to go, let's go see the Liberace movie. I, I would probably have done all right, but it probably made just as much money through subscriptions for H, from HBO subscribers. So it's a, a, and it, oh, but, it had but, to be, a, and it probably HBO knows how to do these movies uh, uh Economically, they can do them less expensively than the studio would have been able to do it. And, and they, so don't, it they makes... don't have to spend the fortune of marketing that a movie would have mm-hmm. to spend. Marketing and distribution and uh, HBO just is really good at this kind of thing. And I think it's a, I think it's fine that it was an HBO movie. It doesn't bother me that it's not a theatrical film. Yeah, he's it's sort of disappointing to me because Michael Douglas should be in the Oscar conversation at the end of the year, and he's not going to be now just because of that. But mm-hmm. that's 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 not that big of a deal at the but end he, of the day. But that's yeah, disappointing but to me. He has an Oscar. He has he, he doesn't have an Emmy, so now he'll have an Emmy. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah, so true. That's, that's one way to look at it. I I agree that I think that the people that would see it would be people that, that once it started to get Oscar buzz, you know, to see his amazing mm-hmm. performance, you know, don't you think? Probably so, because if people went to see the Thatcher movie, if enough people were, if there was a market to see the Thatcher movie, which I would not expect there to be, right? Certainly you would think that as many people would want to see a movie about, that would be a lot more fun than the Margaret Thatcher thing, Right. Right. I thought it was. I mean, I don't know what the ratings are on it, but um, but everybody I know, a lot of people watched it. You know, mm-hmm. just... I haven't checked the ratings either. But everyone who I know who watched it really, most people really liked it a lot. I've only I've only heard from one person. One of our readers, I think, said that they watched an hour of it and thought that it was boring and couldn't watch anymore. And I thought to myself, well, you missed the best part. Then, if you didn't see the end of it, you don't know what the movie was all about. God, I don't know how you get boring out of that. Oh, uh, me either. You have to be dead inside, but we know plenty of people who are. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I like that. I like that it's a melodrama. That's a movie. That's a type of movie that that studios don't make anymore. That pe- they used to make all the time, and that uh, Todd Haynes made with uh, Far From Heaven, and that people like Douglas Sirk and everybody used to make in the 1950s, and and that just fell out of fashion. Uh, the, the the those kind of melodramatic stories, nobody makes them anymore, and HBO does though. Yeah, but and I also just loved Soderbergh's kind of light touch with it. And it was really, for me, fun to watch him kind of back in his old virtuoso style that I think he's so good at. You know, the really kind of light, you know, really heavy on character, but sort of just sort of floating through the movie, you know, mm-hmm. effortlessly almost. Um, A really good script with really good lines, really good quotable lines, really really good uh, scenes and a good great pacing. And you can just tell that you're in the hands of uh, somebody who just is really skilled. Just you're in the hands of a master when you're when Soderbergh is on top on top of his game like that. Yeah, for sure. I think all of his most his 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 pre-retirement pictures have had a certain um, relaxed quality to them. It's like he. He no longer has anything to prove to anybody, so he's just kind of doing projects that he likes doing and doing them in the way he likes doing them, and he's not trying to impress anybody or, or you know, really accomplish anything other than just work with people he likes working with and, and work on projects that are interesting to him. And I think that relaxedness has really benefited each one of his pictures, whether the, whether the pictures themselves have been successes or not. I think... Um, 
I hope he's found a home at HBO. I hope that he can have a relationship with HBO the same way that Mike, Mike Nichols has, has managed to, to maintain. He's, Mike Nichols has done several films now with HBO. If they can't find, if they can't find a studio to back the kind of projects that they want to make, you have to look at the way that the, the movie-going habits have changed, and HBO really is uh, uh, really smart about knowing how to tap into that. And that's something that we maybe when we go back to talking about the end of the 1970s, when we get back to the Oscar history thing in our next podcast next week, and we might talk about that a little bit about how movie-going habits throughout the, from the 1960s to 70s into the 80s changed because of the way that people um, um, see movies at home more. Right. You know, with with uh, with cable television, with HBO with Showtime and then with VHS and with DVD and with Blu-ray movie going habits have changed and so the movie studios are in it for them for the business and they they like to they like to be able to um, present movies in a way that the public will most is most eager to um, see them and so they adapt the studios adapt to that and so they give the audiences what they want in the form that they want and so that that's how why we end up with the with the changing kinds of movies that we're left with at the end of the year when we're looking at what movies we have to consider for awards. Yeah. I think that that's why maybe some of the movies in the 80s, it seems to me a lot of the movies in the 80s that, that were Oscar movies were more domestic dramas like Kramer versus Kramer and Ordinary People and movies like that became more more of the norm instead of the big epics because those are movies that play well on TV and play well on screeners. Yeah, maybe. I, I just feel bad that that movies like this one, Candelabra, can't get the kind of Oscar acclaim that it deserves, and then go to HBO. You know, it mm. just it seems like a waste to me because I know that both of those actors would have been nominated for mm-hmm. sure. You know, and I don't know about maybe Soderbergh, maybe for director, but the actress for sure. But I can see why he's just tired. You know, he's. I if you listen to his Fresh Air interview, his recent interview with him um, and Terry Gross, he talks about. The exodus, the exodus of of the smart audiences from movies to TV and how that's influencing things. And, you know, he says the movie business just isn't fun anymore. It's not fun to work in it anymore. And he said that's why he's he's kind of rethinking his um, career. He he used to love to make movies, but now he said that it's just what it's come down to, what it's become, the kind of target audience it is. And I would even throw in the way movies are received now with the, the wall of noise. On Twitter, which I'm a part of, you know, I can't mm. say I'm not, but um, I would be bummed if I was a, if I was a filmmaker who spent five years on a movie and then only to have it totally roundly dismissed on Twitter by, you know. Right, and TV TV movies don't get the same sort of scrutiny. They don't get the same. They don't. They don't have the weight. They don't have the burden on them, and they don't have. Uh, they, they don't have the, the the pressure of opening weekend and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, exactly. And they, the TV movies have. I still consider television movies, the movies that HBO makes. I still consider them films, and 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 really great movies. It's not only the audiences, the smart audiences that have gravitated to television to find the kinds of stories that they want, but because those stories are being made. I was looking at the the past five years of Best Actress winners at um, at the Emmys for miniseries and movies, and you've got Kate Winslet, Laura Lenny, Claire Danes, Jessica Lange, and Julianne Moore. Yeah, for the you know that's amazing because those are where they find the roles. Meanwhile, in the, the multiplex, we've got Sandra Bullock and Reese Witherspoon. More and more, it seems like all of the buzz is about TV. Um, you don't hear people getting as excited about 
movies on a big scale the way you used to. It's more about, you know, Mad Men or Game of Thrones or the Arrested Development that just came on Netflix or the Liberace movie or that those are the things that I hear talked about excitedly more than any, than, than any of the movies. Yeah, because so. we're in the kind of adult world. We dwell in the adult world, you know. The teenagers are probably still all about the, you know, Man of Steel and Iron Man 3. And um, and there are one or two of those movies every year that I can swallow, that I can tolerate. I can't handle ten of them a year. I can't. I don't even go see ten of them a year. But I would like to go see the very best of them because they are, just like the Avengers, was a, was a lot of fun. But at the same time, you know, I, I understand his argument. I do, and I agree with you, Craig. I think that the, he says Soderbergh that we're that television is experiencing a second golden age right now, and I totally agree with that. I'm just falling in love with a new show called that's about to premiere tonight about a an old Wyoming sheriff. It's called. Um, it's not Wallander. It's something like that. Anyway, it's what it's, channel is it on? It's on A and E. It's really good. I mean. It, Oh, Longmire. Oh, wow. It's called Longmire. And it's interesting. It's everything. It, these shows are like everything that you complain about with movies, like strong, you know, female performances, stories about women, you know, interesting characters, um, you know, minorities represented. It's like <laughs> all that stuff is happening on TV. It's just not happening in the movies. Um, however, at the same time, I will say that um, uh, last year's Oscar lineup, movies that made over a hundred million dollars that showed that there was still an audience i think for for those kind of movies if we could just if we could just you know keep keep it going and not declare it totally dead but look at the top five at the box office fast and Mm -hmm. furious six the hangover three star trek into darkness epic iron man three and if that isn't depressing (laughs) what is all sequels except for epic whatever that is Right, and also I like to th- I like to I like to see from the um, best picture lineup last year that there are movies that are still being made that you really have to see in a the theater to fully appreciate. You can't fully appreciate Hugo on television. You can't watch Life of Pi on television and really have the same experience that you do in the movies. Not yet. Not until televisions cover the whole wall. I mean, it's getting there. Um, you know, the fifty-five inch screens are pretty pretty good, but. Uh, I think I'm, I think that there's there are two different kinds. The movies that HBO makes, for instance, are intimate, personal dramas, with great writing. They're still I still like to say I still like to go to the theater and see something that's going to blow me away. There's still something special about getting up, getting out of your house, buying a ticket, going into a dark room with a bunch of strangers, and the screen lights up, and this thing happens that you can't accomplish at home, no matter how big your screen is and how big your speakers are. It's just not the same thing. It's like mm-hmm. it's like going to a cathedral instead of you know mm-hmm. watching watching the PTL on TV. But and we, the excitement we of being add... in, a, in a cathedral type environment, surrounded by other people, and hearing them ooh or an ooh and ah and laugh at the right places, yeah. and you're laughing with a group of people in the same room with you, you can't achieve that at home. You just can't right. duplicate that. And to kind of bring it full circle, um, before we end the podcast here, um, that that they it is very telling that they showed a quote unquote TV movie in the main competition at Cannes this year for the first time ever. Mm-hmm. That really mm-hmm. is sort of a marker um, of the changing times. I. Well, I heard that they did that. He didn't want Soderbergh didn't want to bring it. That the, that the uh, head of the festival had to beg him practically to bring it and, and, and convince them that it that it had a place there. I'm glad he did. 
I'm sure a lot of it, they invited him a lot of it because it was him and they've had a long, good history with him and vice versa. But also, it's a great movie and I think it's going to be released theatrically overseas. It's just here that it's going to come out on TV. And I think it's great that they overlooked the fact that it's been relegated to the TV movie section here mm-hmm. and showed it anyway. I think that's fantastic. And that was episode 31 of Oscar Podcast with Craig Kennedy from livinginsinema.com. Ryan Adams and me, Sasha Stone from awardsdaily.com. You can follow us on Twitter 